0: America has many questions. Why is this event happening? How do we face the future without fear?
1: What do you do in times like that when everything you trusted in for stability suddenly, instantly, in one day, in one week, is up for grabs? Many Americans this week, many Americans this day are overcome with fear.
0: In this time of national uncertainty, many hearts are turning to God. And it's a natural concern for us to comfort our family and friends with the truth that the Bible provides
1: be still and know that i am god memorize that if you don't already know that
0: last weekend pastor skip presented the message standing firm in unsettling times please consider sharing this message with friends neighbors co-workers anywhere you go a printed copy is inserted in your bulletin today we have copies available for distribution around the church take as many as you will give away You can also listen to the audio version from the Calvary website and send an email of an MP3 version of the message. In the Connection Tape Room, you can purchase cassette copies to give away. Let's take the opportunity to turn what was meant for evil and turn it to good in reaching others. For the past week, Pastor Skip has been in Manhattan helping to set up the Billy Graham Prayer Center. Here's an update that Skip phoned in on Friday.
1: This is Skip Heitzig, and uh, I'm here down in New York City at what they're calling Ground Zero. You can probably hear the heavy equipment in the background. And um, it looks as though they've, they've moved their efforts from uh, rescue and recovery, searching for people, to just taking care of the debris and moving it out of the way. It seems that they've given up hope for finding anybody else. And uh, there's just in front of me a huge, too hard to even describe, pile of rubble uh, that are the remains of the World Trade Center. And uh, we have thousands of fire workers and uh, police officers, uh, emergency medical personnel, and uh, workers like uh, construction crews or Verizon communication experts trying to repair this area. And just a little while ago, I just sat down with a with a worker from Verizon who uh, works for the phone company, but he never in in his lifetime thought he would see this kind of devastation, this kind of uh, gruesome terror. And I could just see a hollow look in his eyes, so I just sat down with him and asked if I could talk to him and tell him who I was and asked if I could just offer some prayer for him, give him some strength. And he said, I'd welcome it. I'd really appreciate it. So we got a chance to pray together, and uh, he really appreciated uh, the comfort. And there's a lot of people like that down here that uh, we're trying our best to reach out to one by one. Uh, The Billy Graham Prayer Center is up, and the first phone call that we received this morning was from a Jewish woman uh, in New York City who lost her daughter in the terrible crash and the downing of the World Trade Center. And so she was holding her granddaughter, uh, who will have to recover through this process as well. And she called the Billy Graham Center for Prayer, and she said, I I called to just tell you how full I am that you folks are in our area doing what you're doing. So the first call was a very positive one uh, from, from a uh, not a believer in Christ, but a woman who is thankful that believers are here to share hope. So uh, we've been working all morning, all day, the last several days uh, into the evening, and we're here now just to, to lend a hand with the effort of uh, just pulling this rubble down and, as well as ministering to people. So we thank you for your prayers, and we'll keep in contact with you. God bless you.
2: Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Lenya, I'm Skip's wife, and uh, I have the privilege this morning of greeting you in his name with a holy kiss, so, mwah, (laughs) from my husband. Thank you. He was really torn about where he should be this morning, this weekend, and uh, it was a hard decision. He called and we prayed about it. But I remember Jesus saying, when he looked up and saw the masses, that they were like sheep without a shepherd, that his heart was moved in compassion for them. And uh, although Skip would love to be here with the sheep in his own flock, I uh, thank him for being with sheep without a shepherd right now in New York City. You know, Jesus said he would leave the 99 to go tend for the one that had strayed away, so please forgive him that he has left the 99 to be with the ones that uh, are having grief. In fact, I just applaud the vision that the Lord gave Franklin Graham uh, during this crisis. He woke us up one morning and said he'd been really praying and, and felt that the, what New York City needed right now were pastors. You know, pastors are a little different than evangelists. Evangelism's always good. We're always to go into the, go- uh, the world and preach the gospel. But pastors lead sheep to green pastures and to still waters that restore their souls and they calm the sheep and they tend the sheep and they bring mercy and grace and comfort and so franklin had this heart that uh, we would get pastors all across the united states probably canada and otherwise to come to new york city and to tend and to care for those who are grieving and having a difficult time and so that's what skip is doing since he's on franklin's board you heard about the first phone call that came in uh... skip called me yesterday and said that they trained sixty people yesterday For this effort, they were training 27 additional people today and approximately 30 more tomorrow. So lots of people are coming for this effort. They have eight phones and they're carried on a four hour shift because the counselors on these phones. Really can't take much more than four hours on the phone. They've sent out 10,000 flyers, as well as had a couple of ads in the newspaper to let people know that there are pastors there who will pray and comfort them. He also told me a couple things about Ground Zero and uh, Union Square, and I thought I'd pass those along with you. He and Gino Geraci, his lifelong friend and pastor from Denver, Colorado, um, got to pray with the elite team of emergency workers from Alaska who do body recovery. And they have these highly sensitive uh, mechanical devices that detect rare gases in the air. Uh, The gases that they uh, detect um, would be the microbes that um, consume human flesh. So it's a hard job that they have. And, And some of the bodies are so deep in the rubble they can flag the spot and then have to move on to someplace else and they could pray with them this team was encouraged though even though they were there and asking for prayer they had gone to turkey after the earthquake and found a twelve-year-old girl alive in the rubble of a seven-story building nine days after the earthquake so they were continuing to seek and to look they also met a chaplain from texas who took them into uh the U.S. Customs Building that had been destroyed. It was a part of a network of buildings with a courtyard in the middle, and they took them at ground zero to this spot because there in the gutted, blown-out courtyard, jutting up from the earth, a huge piece of iron I-beam had fallen into the earth into the shape of a rugged cross. And so they had taken them in there just to observe this. While they were there, a fireman came with another group of people, and apparently it was the fireman who had discovered this rugged cross. And he told them that the day before he had been digging and recovering for bodies and he was depressed, it was getting to him. And he looked up and he saw that cross and it brought him peace and comfort. Others began gathering, FBI agents. And uh, this uh, New York fireman says, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to take that cross out of there and I'm going to make a memorial out of it so everybody will know. And, of course, an FBI agent standing there, you don't really, you can't go in there and take things out. He says, I don't care who hears me. You know, I want people to know about the cross. It was just a a beautiful time. Also, Gina and Skip got to go to Union Square where they met a firefighter named Steve from Cincinnati, Ohio. He arrived there on Wednesday and had worked 30 hours straight. But he was determined to take the flag from his fire department down to Union Square, where you've seen candles and pictures and flowers and people just making memorials for those who had passed. And he really wanted to put his flag on a statue of George Washington. So Skip and Gino got up and helped him drape this flag across the statue of George Washington. And they said everybody in attendance just, you know, broke into applause and cheering. So anyway, um, he should be home soon, and thank you for your prayers. But I did want you to know there are boxes at the exits that are marked for the New York Relief Fund. And normally we don't take an offering or really even mention it, but these aren't normal times, are they? And there are so many that could use our help, and so it seems like the Christian thing to respond to that. And you could respond two ways, spiritually or physically to the needs. That's what the Good Samaritan did, took care of the physical needs, bound up the wounds, as well as the spiritual needs. So if God lays on your heart, if you would like to write a check or put money in there, you could write a check to Samaritan's Purse and put New York Relief Effort, and Samaritan's Purse will make sure pastors continue to be there to minister to the spiritual needs of the flock, or you could make it to the Red Cross, who are taking care of the physical needs. Um, I mentioned this on the radio Wednesday with an update from Skip. And a lady woke up in the middle of the night from our congregation. God had just put it on her heart. And since then, she has been calling friends and family members and businesses and has handed me a check for over $2,000 for the effort. So um, one person can do a lot, no matter what it is. It's also my privilege to introduce you to today's speaker, and that would be Congressman Bill Redmond. Uh, he's an ordained minister. He holds a Master of Divinity. He's been in the ministry for over 20 years, starting a church in Santa Fe, uh, serving as a former Army chaplain. He was a member of the U.S. Congress, the 105th U.S. Congress, serving on the Banking, Veterans, and National Security Committee. He's been married to the same woman for 27 years, and they live in Los Alamos and have two children. I think with his perspective in politics, in the military, as well as a pastor's heart, will give us keen insight into God's Word and the current events that we are living in. Would you please welcome Bill Redmond?
3: Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more could he say? than to you he has said. What more could he say than to you he has said, to you whom to Jesus for refuge has fled. That soul that on Jesus that leans for repose, I will not, I will not, desert to his foes. That so though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. So many of the hymns that we sing reflect our heart, our feelings for God. I ask that we sing this one this morning because this is a hymn that reflects God's heart for us. America's age of innocence is indeed over. America will never be the same. Our freedom, our safety, our protection all have been penetrated and still remain threatened. We come today here with heavy hearts, seeking the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer, and the Consummator of the universe for comfort. In hope, and direction. And so we turn to hymns and passages in the Scripture. Hymns like How Firm a Foundation. Psalms like Psalm 46. When it seems that every foundation under us is shattered. And there's nothing stable. And your mind begins to wonder whether... Your life is indeed built upon the rock. 9 is a day that will be a day of infamy. And everybody has responded in some way to the tragedy that has occurred. Yesterday in Washington, D.C., and also in New York, there were war protesters. That's one response. There have been others that have responded the Conference of Catholic Bishops and Council of Muslims in the United States. They have issued a joint letter calling for unity among all ethnic groups, calling for assistance to the assistance for the victims, calling for us to join in the government in pursuit of justice, calling for us to act with restraint and respect for civilian lives calling upon us to, to condemn hate crimes, but above all, calling upon us to pray for peace. Over the weekend, there were also concerts across the nation, benefit concerts, that's another way to respond. Lawyers have responded, they've issued subpoenas. I'm not sure that's the correct Christian response. Even the other night on television, uh, Bianca Jagger, Mick Jagger's former wife, was responding and calling for accountability. And the interviewer asked her, well, how would we go about getting this accountability? She had no clue. The reason she had no clue is that she has a, a worldview and a faith system that does not have a category for justice. We'll talk about that in a moment been a lot of flag buying and flag waving, and that's a response. Our flag has been posted on our house, and we light it even at night. We've never done that before. Jay Leno has had Arnold Schwarzenegger on his show waving the flag, signing Jay's Harley-Davidson that he's going to auction off to the highest bidder, and the the money is going to go for the, uh, um, the families of the victims jail run out and buy another harley but you see everybody is responding to the crisis but you see you and I we must remember that the apostle paul in his letter to the philippian church reminds us that we're different from other people we bear the name of christ and because we bear the name of christ because we hold up the cross of christ we have a dual citizenship We have a citizenship in heaven and we have a citizenship on earth. We happen to be Americans. This is where our citizenship on earth is. But he reminds us that it is always our citizenship in heaven that is the criteria by which we evaluate our citizenship on earth. It is our citizenship in heaven that always comes first. And so it's imperative for the Christian to respond with a Christian worldview, from a Christian perspective, because if Jesus is Lord, He's Lord of all. Positrons, mesons, black holes, dense matter, the genetic code, governments. Isaiah says that He raises up nations and He brings them down. The nations are but as dust in the balance. If this is true, and He's Lord of all, we need to be perceptive as to what Jesus would have us do in this circumstance. Not that threatening our security is the only time we should be asking, what would Jesus do? Because when we're washed in the blood of the Lamb and we become sanctified in Christ, we become, this is people, that that, that shining light, that stinging salt that transforms the culture in which we live. God has called us to do that. Paul tells us in Romans that the whole creation groans to see the salvation as it's worked out through the sons and the daughters of God. The whole creation groans and is waiting to see what the body of Christ will do. So how do we respond? Well, one response is, like my favorite philosopher, Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof, Tevius says that um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's biblical. He says it's a very quick way to a blind and toothless world. We need to remember that when the Holy Spirit revealed the concept of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it was never required that we take our pound of flesh. It was put there so that we knew the limits of the retribution because our souls are evil and we would dare go beyond that which is just. And it was a reminder of our own sinfulness in an attempt to bring about justice. Now, there are two views that are out there, basically, that we can choose. Very simple. One view shows its way in many forms. The other view always shows its way one, itself in one way. The first is a worldview that says that there is a God. The second is a worldview that says that there is no God. The first view that says that there is a God will issue in a culture where life is sacred and freedom will flow. The other is a culture that says there is no God The government's in charge. We had a hundred years of that in the 20th century. Millions of people went to their graves seeking a utopia that says that there is no God or God is dead and man is the only thing. That man is the measure of all things, of what's right and what's wrong. And if man is the measure of all things, and we're very quickly into relativism. No longer is there an eternal standard of justice and righteousness. No longer is there an eternal ruler by which the behavior of all human beings, ruler and pauper alike, are measured. That's gone. And only thing that is left is that might is right. And so seeking those cultures where man is the center, And man is the measure. And government is the ultimate. Those cultures were dark and devastating and led to death. Now, if you think that that the gospel of that culture, that gospel of death and destruction is served up in ugly ways, I, I just want to share with you that it's not. In fact, that gospel has been preached and embraced and received in the United States and in many forms and in many, many ways. One of, the, uh, one of the ways in which it has been propagated is through music, particularly through, the, through some of the rock music of the Beatles. I want to share with you the words from a song from John Lennon. Many of you know this song, but it is a, it is a false gospel, but it holds out hope. It's a false hope. It holds out comfort. It's a false comfort. But yet is embraced. And people that we know have embraced this because they do not know Christ. John Lennon sang, and some of us have even sung along with him. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above is only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. Now, if you think that only Christians offer invitations to accept a worldview and to place faith in a a belief system, we're wrong the non-believers are always inviting others to join them. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. It was a different songwriter of the same era that identified for her as the foundational belief system of John Lennon's ideology in the song. Don McLean in his song Bye Bye Miss American Pie reminds us that while Lennon, that's John Lennon, read a book on Marx, that's Karl Marx, the quartet, that was the Beatles, practiced in the park, Yankee Stadium. And we sang dirges. Funeral songs of lamentation because death has penetrated our existence. We sang dirges in the dark. You see, Karl Marx and John Lennon. Bianca, Jagger, and the rest of them. They don't understand the founding and the genius of America. They don't start where we do that says that there is a God. They start with the presupposition that there is no God and and they end up in a different place because the starting point was different. You see, the founding fathers... Even though they were influenced by the Enlightenment, they knew that something greater than the wisdom and the rationality of man was needed for the foundation of a sustainable culture. A culture where the individual was recognized and honored. And there was dignity for the human being. And so they didn't start with it themselves. They were not the starting point. But they stood before the watching world and they said... Because of what we know, because of our biblical tradition, we understand that all men, males and females, humans of all nationalities and all races, that all are made in the image and likeness of God. And that the value of every human being is one crucified Lord. Therefore, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator, not the government, not the President, not the Congress, not the Supreme Court, but they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. The government didn't give you your rights. The government cannot take them away. The government didn't give you the right to life. The government cannot take it. The government did not give you the right to liberty. The government cannot take it. The government didn't, did not give you the right to pursue happiness and the government cannot take it. God. God gave us the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to pursue happiness. In the next verse, in the Declaration of Independence, it states the purpose of government. And governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. To be secured because the founders knew that there was evil in the world and evil men would deny others life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And sometimes those that deny are even the government themselves. As in China, in Russia, in Germany, Cambodia... And the list goes on. Millions and millions in the 20th century were murdered by their government because their government didn't know that they were going to be held accountable before God. They didn't believe. And they sang dirges in the dark. So the founders knew that the rights and the dignity of man could not be grounded in the government, it had to be grounded in eternity. And that the role of government, straight out of Romans 13 and into the Declaration of Independence, is that governments are instituted. Why? To redistribute wealth? No, that's Karl Marx. Governments exist to secure for the individual what God has given to them. It is the responsibility of government to constrain and to destroy that which is evil. So how should we respond as Christians? Do we respond with the syrupy, saccharine sentimentalism of utopian thought like John Lennon? Or do we have a real vis- realistic view of the world and respond in strength and power and hope and the source of comfort from Christ? We're in a war. The ultimate war is between good and evil. It just raises its ugly head in different ways and most recently in the World Trade Center. Evil's been here before. The gulags, the gas chambers, the concentration camps, the labor camps, slavery. Evil's been here before. It stalks us like a roaring lion, seeking who it can devour next. But we, my brothers and sisters, we wear the name of Christ. We're that stinging salt that prevents the culture from decaying. We're that light of hope that Christ has placed in the center of a dark, dark world. God has called us for such a time as this. And we will respond based on a Christian worldview that's grounded in the scripture and anchored in eternity. God does not sacrifice justice on the altar of love. Nor should we, for sentimental notions of false hopes, of earthly utopias, sell our souls to the cheapest bidder of darkness. We're in a war. The question is not whether Christians should go to war. The question is how. How? do Christians go to war? I'm a former army chaplain. My daughter's an Arabic linguist for army intelligence. Her bags are packed. She's ready to go. Ready to sacrifice for truth and our freedom. Some of your wives and husbands and sons and daughters will be called What will we do? How will we respond as those who wear the name of Christ? Biblical worldview requires at least five things for the engagement of Christians in war. Number one, it must be a just cause. God help America if we ever march off to war and the cause is not just. Number two, it must be the action of last resort. In this case we have begged we have bartered and we have bribed the terrorist for two decades to be rewarded with the day of infamy of 911 and the known death of over 7000 and the grief of millions and make no mistake about it the target was not the world trade center the target was to destabilize the american government so a whole culture was placed in disarray It was the destruction of a whole way of life that's based on the idea that there is a God. And it's God that gives us the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That was the target. Number three, that whatever damage or evil we may cause must be less than that is the created than created by the opponent. Number four, we must have a good chance of success before we go forward. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, civilians can never, ever, ever intentionally be targeted. We as Christians must not shrink from this just war, But we must be quick to condemn any government, including our own, if it exceeds the constraints of war that are identified in the Scripture. God has called us to do justice and yet to pray for our enemies. It's a very narrow tightrope this God of ours has called us to walk but by His power and His grace, we will do so. Justice will be done. And we will pray for those, as Jesus did on the cross, for those who do not know what they do. Have you prayed for Osama bin Laden? Have you prayed for Yasser, Arafat, Saddam, Hussein, Muammar, Gaddafi. It's hard. But we're Christians. And we're anchored not in the sentimentality that, that comes from, from human shallowness, but we're anchored in the depth and the love of Almighty God so we can have the boldness to pray for those who would persecute. America is a powerful nation. The most important word in the lexicon of American government is the word Creator. But the last 30 years here in America the erosion has been swift, the chipping away has been sure. And Americans have forgotten who we are and where we have come from. Last week, churches across the nation were packed. But I want to remind you that before the Berlin Wall came down, when the uprising was starting in Poland, over 80% of the Polish population was in church every Sunday praying to God for deliverance from the communist foot that was stepping on their neck. And God answered the prayer. Today in Poland, which by the way, it was a communist country then, over 80% in church. Today in Poland, it's a free country. Less than 30% attend church. You see, the human heart is quick to forget the grounding of our freedom, the source of the love, the strength of the power. We're a great nation, but never forget why we are great. It is, we are not great in and of ourselves. Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1830s, Frenchman, came to the United States. And he wanted to know why America, what made America great? What, what was it that made America stand out? We were only a very young nation, but yet we were strong and powerful. We hadn't even become a world power yet. Alexis de Tocqueville came and he studied, he traveled, and he observed the American people. And in conclusion, in answering the question as to why America is great, a question that every single one here should be asking today and making sure that you leave here today with the answer in your heart and on your lips, ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Alexis de Tocqueville said this, I sought the key to greatness and genius of America in her harbors, her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich minds, in her vast world commerce, in her public school system, in her institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic congress and in her matchless constitution. But it was not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I understood the secret of her genius and power he concluded that America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will also cease to be great. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is an offense to any people. Our founders understood this and that's why they grounded our culture with the presupposition of a creator. Faith in God, I'll say again, will issue in life and freedom and dignity for the individual. The belief that there is no God will inevitably, make no mistake about it, will inevitably conclude in death, and destruction, and bondage. And every generation must choose for itself which road you will walk down. Will we choose that there is a God and shape our culture from that perspective? Or will we go the way of John Lennon and so many others who went to San Francisco with flowers in their hair, say that there is no God And we're the measure of all things. That's your choice today. And many of you have been influenced by the teachings of John Lennon. And they've come to you from your university professors and high school teachers. And and you've absorbed them. And you see them on the TV. And you've heard them on the radio. And you read them in the newspaper. But we're called to have the mind of Christ. A Christian mind where we can perceive and discern that which is true. Francis Scott Key, experienced something that I pray that you and I will never have to experience. As all, all of you know, Francis Scott Key is the author of our national anthem, and, and, and that song didn't come about because they ran a contest, and, and you, you write the words, and, and uh, uh, you know the, there's a committee that makes a judgment as to which one will be chosen. And, and, and by the way, the, the national anthem does not start or does not end with the words "play ball."." The national anthem was born in a crucible of terror. Did you know that? Terror was the cradle of our national anthem. You see, Francis Scott Key was there at a key battle. And during the day he could see the American flag and as the Sun was going down and the day was ending he could see the American flag and and during the night while the battle was raging because of the way they conducted the battle he could see the American flag and then in the morning when the the mist of morning and the smoke from the battle from from the previous night was in the atmosphere he couldn't see the flag and he didn't know whether America was dead or alive. And I hope that you and I never have to experience in our heart for even a nanosecond the terror and fear, knowing that the nation that God has called to be the light of the world will be snuffed out. How dark, dark, dark that day will be. And so terror struck at the heart of Francis Scott Key. And he bears witness to it in the song. Now the song in the first verse is a question, and many of you think that there's only one verse in the national anthem and only those that can do vocal gymnastics are qualified to sing it. see, they went through the bars and the taverns and the countryside inns, looking for a melody that all Americans knew and all Americans could sing because being an American is not a spectator sport. And so they selected a simple tune and they took that tune and placed it to these words. He asked the question and he says, oh, say, can you see? He asked See, he couldn't see. He didn't know. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. See, when the sun was going down, he could see it. And during the battle, he could see it, because the way that they did battle in those days is that... uh, See, Sandia had not yet invented infrared goggles, okay? And they didn't have radar, so they didn't know where the enemy was, and they didn't know where to point their cannons. So in order to conduct war, in night, they would put fireworks up in the air, light up the sky, and then they could see where to shoot, or know when to retreat, or know when to move forward. That's how battle was done. And and while the battle was raging, he could see the flag. But when the morning came, he couldn't see. And terror struck his heart because for however long it was, he thought that maybe America had been thrown on the trash heap of history. The hopes and the aspirations of a free people. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And he asked the question a second time. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave? And the question ends. And we applaud and sit down to be entertained in our day. But that's a question that begs an answer. And he answers the question in the fourth verse of the psalm before i share with you the fourth verse of the song there are people in the audience and you may be sitting next to one that francis gaki wrote about in this fourth verse if you're a man or woman and you've worn the uniform of the United States of America regardless of what branch of service you served and you were willing to lay down your life for the truth That it's God that gave us the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And for the freedom of the people that sit here today, if you are one of those, please stand so we can thank you for your commitment. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace. May the heavens-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved as a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. Then the star-spangled banner forever shall wave o'er the land of the free, in the home of the brave. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell shall endeavor to shake I'll never, no never No, never forsake. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to put our hands over our hearts. And we're going to sing the first and the fourth verse of the National Anthem. But before we do, just keep in your mind that this song is not as much about America as it is about God's deliverance and our dependence on the risen Savior Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me please? Our Father in heaven we bow before you because you indeed are the Lord and the giver of life. By the power of your word you spoke and all creation came into being. Jesus our Lord the Christ of God. You are the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the consummator of the universe. You rise up nations and you bring them down. You revealed through your servant, the prophet Isaiah, that the nations are but as dust in the balance. You've told us that you will shut the the mouths of princes and kings because what they had not heard they will hear and what they not, had not seen they will, they will comprehend. Because your suffering servant is the righteousness by which men and women and kingdoms are measured. We pray that you would be with us as we would have a Christian worldview and in, in living in the times in which we live. We pray for our national leaders in America for George Bush and Dick Cheney and and for the members of the Congress. And yes, Father, we have the boldness and the courage and the confidence that you will hear our prayers. We pray for our enemies. We pray, Father, for Osama bin Laden. We pray, Lord, for Muammar Gaddafi and Yasser Arafat. We pray for Saddam Hussein. For they are fallen men like ourselves. And Jesus has died for them, and they know not what they do. They, of most men, are all to be pitied. So, Father, we ask your mercy and your grace. Give us wisdom as we execute your justice, In mercy as we walk humbly with you. We ask this in the most powerful name, no lesser name than the Lord Jesus. Amen.